0: Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah, the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel, or at least that's what some Hebrew scholars call the book of Isaiah, which makes a lot of sense, seeing as though that maybe aside from the book of Psalms, there is no Old Testament book that says more about Jesus Christ than the prophet Isaiah. It is the prophetic gospel, the pre-gospel, the proto-gospel, a book of prophecy filled with predictions, portrayals of Jesus Christ. When you understand contained in the 66 chapters of Isaiah, it is the entirety of Christ's life predicted and revealed with incredible specificity. His virgin birth in chapter seven his Galilean ministry in chapter nine, his preaching of the gospel and the miracles that he would do in chapter 61, the hatred he endured, his sinless life, the brutal violence he suffered, even down to the spitting and being beaten and being spat upon, chapter 50, the torture that he experienced, his sacrificial death, the grave in which he was buried, his resurrection from that grave, all of that in chapter 53. And then not to mention his second coming, his arrival and his kingdom. And not even just that, but even what that kingdom will be like, what that kingdom will, will look like, all of that in the book of Isaiah. You understand the entire life of Jesus Christ is contained in this book 700 years before he ever even showed up to the planet. Easily, easily giving Isaiah the title of the fifth gospel. And this morning, that is exactly what we see. Jesus Christ portrayed in and revealed in our text in what I call a messianic poem of hope. A messianic poem of hope. And you, you know this probably. There are several of these poems in the book of Isaiah. There was one in chapter 42, which we saw. There's one here in chapter 49. There's one in chapter 50, chapter 53, and 61. You understand these are poetic prophetic portrayals of Jesus Christ and all that he would do to end the reign of sin and terror in the world. And you read these poems and there is no mistaking who this is. It has to be Christ. It just has to be. And yet, one of the things that makes these poems so profound and even provocative is the title that he's given in these poems. The Messiah has lots of titles to identify who he is, right? He is a redeemer, he is a savior, he is a king. But you see, and, he, and, you, and you read, and he's, he's a wonderful counselor, and, he, and he's mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, all of that, all of that, and, and more than that. And, and yet, what makes these poems so profound is that the title that Isaiah gives the Messiah to come, get this, is the servant. He calls him the servant. Think about how profound that is. The one who will crush his enemies and rule the kingdom. The one who will crush the head of the serpent and shatter kings in the day of his wrath. The one who rules and reigns over his people with invincible sovereign power is called a servant saves his people who who serves his people who sacrifices for his people which means this is no conventional hero he he shatters all human expectations because as you're about to see this servant is also a suffering servant suffering in the very place of the people who deserved to suffer you see he will become the hero by being treated as the villain. Weakness will be his power. He will destroy death by dying. He will slaughter sin by being the sacrifice for sin. He will crush evil by laying it upon himself and then rising from the dead. Here now is a redeemer and king who saves the world by serving the world and who saves the world by suffering for the world. And I just need you to know, beloved, we need this. We really need this. We need to see the beauty and the worth and the redemptive glory of Jesus Christ. And the people in Isaiah's day, they also needed to see this, didn't they? Poor, bedraggled people of Israel, they needed to see this too. Because you remember, the people to whom Isaiah were writing were 2,000 miles away and 120 years in the future in Babylon in exile. That's a crisis a staggering theological crisis of faith shattering proportions and yet if they could just see if they could just see a a glimpse of the savior servant king to come then they would know this ain't over that this can't be over there is a way for the giant mess of the planet to be fixed and it will be fixed by this one that this chapter calls a servant and a sword and a covenant and light. That's chapter 49. Now let me just let me just ask you something. Just get your take on this for a second. Would you believe me that if I told you that the secret of your holiness and the power of your sanctification was contained in this chapter? Would you believe me? What if I told you that the power to conquer your deepest fears and to cultivate your faith was contained in this messianic poem of hope? Would you believe me? Would you believe me if I said that deeply embedded patterns of sin that you've never been able to kill, that they could be dislodged and destroyed by this poem written 2,700 years before you were ever even born? that marriages can be saved by this text? That souls can be rescued from hell by this text? That the cloud of depression can be lifted by this text? Not because this chapter addresses any of those issues directly. But what it does give us is the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ. And that is the power that goes underneath all those issues to the very root. John Owen, the Puritan, said this. Listen carefully. He said, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith, which we're about to do, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds, he says, are apt to be filled with troubles and fears and cares and dangers and and, and distresses, ungoverned passions and lusts. Does that describe you at all? By these, he says, our thoughts are filled with chaos and darkness and confusion, but where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and Beloved, he is exactly right. The glory of Christ is precisely where we're going. If you've got your notes, either way, this is where we're going this morning. I want you to see three reasons. Three reasons why the servant Jesus Christ is worthy of all hope and joy and worship and allegiance. Three reasons why Christ, the great servant to come, who has come and will come again, is worthy of all hope and joy and worship and allegiance. And before we see any of those, we have to look at the poem itself. And the poem comes in two parts. Part one is this. First, the testimony of the servant. The testimony of the servant. Because do you remember red-letter Bibles? Maybe you have a red-letter Bible. And I see the point of red-letter Bibles. And I guess my point here is that if a red-letter Bible is going to be consistent, the words of Isaiah chapter 49 also have to be in red because these are the words of Christ himself before time began, before creation. And the speech of the servant, the speech of Christ, comes in three parts. You can see it there in your notes. There is the calling of the servant, there is the confidence of the servant, and then there is the commission of the servant. And so let's look at the calling of the servant in verses one through three. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, calls out seven centuries before he showed up, and he says this Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, O peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, literally from the bowels of my mother, he summoned my name. And he, Yahweh appointed my mouth like a sharp sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. He appointed me like a, better to put this, a sharpened arrow and he has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I shall show my Beautiful glory. And there he is, verse 3, the servant. And again, if this whole servant is Messiah, is Jesus thing, is new to you, don't forget that we have seen him before in the book of Isaiah just by other names, haven't we? We've seen him before. Chapter 7, he is Emmanuel, God with us, the one to come from the womb of the virgin. Here he is. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The child to be born, the the son to be given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, the one to rule on David's throne. This is him. He is here in chapter 49. The one in chapter 11, the king from David's line who will come to earth establish his kingdom and remove the curse from the planet. Here he is. This is him. He is in the text. And and we know that they're one and the same person because in Isaiah, we see the servant and the king doing the exact same things. The servant is the king. The king is the servant. Which means the titles of servant and king are not contradictory. They are complementary. The one who rules his people is the one who redeems his people. The one who is supreme over his people is the one who serves and saves his people and you know that when we get to chapter 53 this is the suffering one who sacrifices himself for his people and you can totally tell that these servant poems these are a really big deal for us because who could these be other than jesus christ himself who could they be has to be him And we know that not only because the poems themselves point in that direction, but when we get in the New Testament, every single one of these servant poems is quoted, and they are applied to Jesus Christ himself. And here the servant speaks, and notice, notice to whom it is the servant speaks. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, O peoples from afar. That's intriguing, isn't it? You would expect, you would expect him to be speaking to the people of Israel since the book of Isaiah was written to the people of Israel, but he doesn't. He speaks to the nations. Why? Why? Because he commands their allegiance also. The servant speaks to the nations precisely because they also will be the object of his redemptive work, not just the Jews. Back in chapter two, it says that he would bring peace and justice to the nations. Chapter 11 has said that he would be a banner for the nations. Chapter 42 said that he would bring justice to the very ends of the earth. You understand, the servant is not some tribal hero only for the Jews, and then everyone else can pick the savior of their choosing. No, there is but one savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ or it is condemnation. I don't make the rules, I just report the facts. And here he speaks with authority, commanding the world to listen. And yet the question is, what does he want the nations to know? Look very carefully, verse one. He says, Yahweh has called me from the womb. From the loins of my mother, he has summoned my name. Called from the womb. Summoned before he was ever even born. What's the point? I think the the servant wants the nations to know He didn't appoint himself. He's not starting some Jewish sect. He's not not starting a cult. No, he is the sovereignly chosen, divinely called redeemer and savior of the entirety of the human race. The Messiah was summoned by Yahweh even from the womb to bring salvation to the nations and light to the world. And yet, and yet, listen carefully, Although he is a savior and a redeemer coming to seek and save the lost, that does not mean he is a wimp or a pushover, because he is also a weapon. Look at verse 2. The servant says, he, Yahweh, has appointed my mouth like a sharp sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hands. He has appointed me as a polished or chosen or better, sharpened arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Do you see that? A sword and an arrow. God appointed the servant to be a sharpened sword and a piercing arrow. And you know, you know, swords are not for shaving. Arrows are not for tickling. And he is not coming to give out hugs and candy but judgment and war. This isn't some milk toast Messiah. This isn't some soft-serve Savior. He is coming to give judgment and war, love and salvation for sinners, absolutely that too, but also judgment and war. Rebels, demons, sin, death are going to be his victims, and yet you notice very carefully at the text, he doesn't carry a sword. He is the sword. His mouth is the blade that cuts the hearts of men. He himself is the arrow in the hand of Yahweh to cut enemies down and bring the rebel planet back into submission. And this is not the first time, is it, that we've seen the mouth of the Messiah as a weapon? We have seen this before. We will see it again, won't we? Isaiah chapter 11 says that when Christ returns, he will strike The earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Revelation 19, 15 says that out of his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword that with it he may strike down the nation's meaning to conquer his enemies and slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth. All he needs to do is speak. Even his words have death-dealing power. And you notice, you notice the parallel statements. He says, Yahweh has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. Yahweh has hidden me in his quiver, meaning very simply, it is not yet time. It's not time for wrath. It's not time for judgment, although that time is coming very soon. You think about it this way, in dangerous situations, cops keep their hands on the gun and their weapon, and they only remove them when it is time to use them And that's exactly what this is. Yahweh has his hand on the sword of his servant. The arrow of his servant is in the quiver of his patience. And very soon the time will come when he will draw his weapons and go to war, i.e. Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19. And that time is not far. But then in verse 3, notice what the servant does. This is just incredible. I mean, think about what we are seeing here. The servant who is Christ is recounting for us a private conversation between he and Yahweh before time began. Verse three, and he, Yahweh said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. And there he is, you are my servant and that doesn't sound profound to us but it totally should. Moses was called a servant in numbers 12. David was called a servant in psalm 89. And yet here here in this servant is the ultimate definitive expression of what a servant of what Moses and David were called to be. Moses was a prophet. David was a king. Moses led an exodus. David ruled a kingdom. And yet here is the new and greater Moses. Here is the new and greater David. He will lead a global exodus at the end of the age. He will rule a global kingdom at the end of the age. He will do things that Moses and David could never even dream about. When he arrives, he will serve, and he will save, and he does supply all that we need. And you notice there in verse 3, Yahweh gives him a name, and notice the name that he gives him is Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? He calls him Israel. Not because he is the nation Israel, but because he is the representative of Israel. He calls him Israel, not because he is the nation, but because he is the ultimate Israelite. Coming to do for Israel what they could never do for themselves. Think about it this way. This is shocking. But God became a Jew. To save the Jews from the inside out and through the Jews bring salvation to the world. That was the plan. And that was always, always the plan. And end of the verse, notice, don't overlook this, it says that he will, Yahweh will use him to show his glory. What does that mean? It means that the servant will be the agent of God's glory. He will be the one to bring the glory of God back to the center of reality where it rightfully belongs. Which brings us then to the confidence of the servant. The confidence, or should I say the concern and the confidence of the servant because you understand the servant is Deeply concerned, look at verse 4. The servant responds to what Yahweh said, and he says, But I have said, in vain I have wearied myself. For nothing and futility I have spent my strength. Nevertheless, my justice is with Yahweh, and my reward is with my God. Can you hear it? concern and the confidence there, the the servant replies to Yahweh's calling. Can you see the conversation, the progression of the conversation? The servant replies to Yahweh's calling to be the servant, to be the redeemer and the Messiah. And you can tell, although not resistant to the call, he's fully aware of the suffering it would bring, isn't he? Because you know very well that the path to Christ's kingdom The path to the redemption that he would bring, the the, the path to his glory at the end of the age would include the means of suffering and pain. And you know this, you have read the gospels, not everyone would get him. Not everyone would believe in him, not everyone would accept him, although he appears again and again in the Old Testament text with stunning clarity and specificity. Not everyone would recognize him as their creator, as their king, as their savior. I mean, give me a sadder verse in the Bible than John 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. You understand that's what he means in verse 4 when he says, in vain I have wearied myself for nothing and futility. I have spent my strength, which is just incredible, isn't it? Do you see what we have here? In a moment of of brutal honesty, the Messiah reveals to Yahweh his awareness of the suffering his ministry would bring to himself. Did bring to him. Look at the words he uses. Every single one is filled with pain. In vain, he says, wearied for nothing. Futility spent my strength. He knew he was going to suffer. He knew what this meant. He, he knew that this was always the plan. There was no other way to save the souls of men. And yet the question is, why would he suffer? What was the, what was the reason? What was the cause of his suffering? Why? Who, who would afflict this one? And in the very next chapter, the next poem of the Messiah, we see why he would suffer. Listen to what it says. Chapter 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me. And my cheeks to those who pluck out my my beard. I did not hide my face from humiliation and spitting. And then in chapter 53, another of these servant poems of the Messiah predicting again the, the sufferings of the servant. If you have your notes, it's in there. It says, he was despised. Forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, unacquainted with grief, and one like whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's why he would suffer, did in fact suffer, right? Precisely because he was hated by men, scorned by the ones he came to save, denied by the ones he came to deliver, rejected by the ones he came to redeem here, here in verse 4, he almost, almost, but not quite, but darn near, almost, is in despair, because from a human perspective, his mission looks like an absolute disaster, does it not? Looks like a total failure. And yet, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly the point, beloved, because do you not see theologically what we are seeing here in verse 4? Theologically... What are we seeing here in verse 4? But the full humanity of Christ. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave. And being found in appearance as a man. And being found as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you cut him, he would bleed. If you crucified him, he would die. Put him in a situation crushing enough, he might even just sweat drops of blood. So many people would reject him and hate him and leave him. And yet, what does he say in the text? Saves him from despair. End of the verse. Akein mishpati et Yahweh. My justice is with Yahweh. And my reward is with my God. You understand, church. That's the same paradigm for us, isn't it? That's that's the exact same paradigm for us because you you know that we might and definitely will suffer affliction as his disciples, won't we? It's inevitable. It is inevitable that there is a target on our chest and a price on our head. It is coming. There is no denying this. And and in a situation like that, we probably will feel like he did. In vain, I have wearied myself. For nothing, and futility, I have spent my strength. What is even the point of this? No one believes. Everybody rejects. The darkness is winning, or so it seems, and perhaps now more than ever. And yet, and yet, what is it that sustains us? (laughs) Like the Christ you follow, your justice is with Yahweh. Like the Christ you follow, your reward is with your God. Anything, beloved, you lose or suffer for the sake of Christ will be repaid back 10,000 times over at the end of the age. You have nothing to lose in being vocal and radical in your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, they will kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Which brings us then to the commission of the servant. The commission of the servant, verses 5 and 6. Because again, remember, this is a conversation, a Trinitarian conversation between the father and the son before creation. And now the father is going to address the servant's concerns about his suffering because the servant is concerned. Look at Yahweh's response, verse five. And now says Yahweh who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to do what? Notice, to restore Jacob to him and Israel shall be gathered to him. We blow stuff by stuff like that way too fast. That's really big. He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, wasn't he? Israel will be saved. That is why the servant was sent. And yet what will be the outcome of the mission? This is really important. End of verse 5. I will be glorified in the eyes of Yahweh and my strength and my God is my strength. Do you see that? That's theologically really profound, the servant will get the glory and Yahweh will be the one to give it to him. Which is a pretty bold claim considering the fact that Isaiah 48, 11, Yahweh just said he gives his glory to nobody else. But he'll give it to the servant because the servant is God. And there you noticed You notice in verse 5 that the servant servant was about to quote Yahweh's response to the servant's concerns. The servant is concerned about the suffering. The servant is concerned about a mission that looks like on the surface, on paper, like an absolute disaster. And notice how Yahweh responds. Verse 6, listen carefully. And he, Yahweh, said, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Also, I also will make literally give you as a light for the nations to bring my salvation to the end of the earth. Do you know why we do missions? Do you know why we care about missions? Why we believe it's worth the time and the money and the blood of the martyrs? Do you know why? Precisely because of verses like this. Which is just so profound because think about what this is. Verse 6 is a quote from Yahweh to the servant. From the Father to the Son, before creation, before anybody even existed, and even then the plan was set, a world would exist. People would exist. Sin would exist. Sinners who need a Savior would exist. And even then, the servant was appointed to save them. Don't you see? We have Trinitarian assurance that the Great Commission can not possibly fail. This is where all true passion for missions begins. And look at the two part purpose of the plan. Verse six, Yahweh said, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light Of the nations to bring my salvation to the end of the earth. Do you see that? Not either or. It is both and, isn't it? Not either Israel or the nations. It is both Israel and the nations. The servant was sent to save them both. And look at the specificity. The servant was sent not just to Israel in general, but he was sent to restore the tribes of Jacob. Do you want to spiritualize that to make it mean something other than what the text says? shouldn't do that. That's very specific. Literal 12 tribes. Those will be restored. That is part of the servant's redemptive work, to restore those 12 tribes. And according to Revelation 7, they do get restored at the end. It's incredible. You, you understand, Revelation uh, Romans 11.26 is clear and unmistakable. One day all Israel shall be saved. This matters, beloved. This is a part of the Trinity's plan, which means it should be a part of your theology. All of the Bible is literally about Yahweh making good on his promises to Israel, and therein lies the guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. Yet, if a mom is going to go through the trouble of giving birth to a baby, she isn't only going to show the baby to family, is she? She is gonna show the baby to everyone. That baby is a treasure worth showing off. That baby is a treasure worth ooing and awing over, and that is exactly the case with Yahweh and his son. Verse 6 again, my son, if we're going to go through the trouble of sending you to earth, if we're going to go through the trouble of incarnating you as a human being and sending you to suffer for the sins of men, you won't only save Israel, them too. Them too, but not only them. No, you gotta, your worth is worth more than just showing to the people of Israel. Your beauty and worth deserves more recognition than if you had come only for the people of Israel. No, we're going, we're going international on this. We're going global on this. End of the verse, Yahweh says, I will make you, literally, I will give you as a light of the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And now it makes sense, doesn't it? Why when Christ called himself the light of the world in John eight twelve, the room went ballistic and was offended? Why? Because they knew he was claiming to be this. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. To which they reply, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Why so offended? Why so defensive about that? Because they absolutely understood in calling himself the light. He was claiming to be the servant of Isaiah 49, verse 6. That was me. I am here. I am him. I have arrived. And yet the question is, what does that even mean, to be the light? What does that mean, to be the light? And and the second half of the verse explains. It is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Literally, the Hebrew says, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He doesn't just bring salvation. He is salvation itself. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. And this is a lot already. Just six verses in, and this is a lot. This is heavy lifting, as we like to say. And yet, even with all of this that we're seeing, can you see why the servant is worthy of our hope? Can you see why the servant is worthy of our joy? Can you see why the servant is worthy of our worship and our allegiance? Let me ask you this. If the servant Jesus Christ were standing here on the stage, or you could, in some weird alternative reality, take him to lunch after church and have a conversation with him, and you could ask him for anything, for what would you ask? If you could ask him to work in your life, and to serve you in a sovereign and supernatural way and to renovate anything about your life for the display of his glory, for what would you ask? Because you know, don't you? He doesn't need to be physically here to do that. He is present in and through his word. He serves his people in and through his word. It sounds crazy. It sounds bonkers, but it's true. All the power with which he transforms his people's lives is accessed, listen carefully, is accessed through the careful, desperate reading of the sacred text in hungry dependence and faith. The servant loves to save his people, and he loves to serve his people and serve them through his word. That's part one. That's part one, which brings us to part two of the poem. Part two of the poem, which I call the triumph of the servant. The triumph of the servant. You know, one of my bizarre thrills as a kid was those magic grow capsules. Do you remember those? That's literally what they're called, magic grow capsules. They're about the size of an aspirin, I suppose, and yet crammed into this aspirin sized little plastic pill is just wonder and dazzling amazement. Well, not really, but kind of. You you remember these things compacted into these little, these pills with this expandable foam and you throw them in water and the shell dissolves and it's immediately, and and then after a few minutes, a, a giant dinosaur emerges. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody knows about magic grow. Okay, I was just going to say, you are missing out. Your lives are so empty without magic grow capsules. And and there may be a a spider or a sea creature, spaceship, race car, whatever. Here's my point. Great segue for an illustration here. Um, (laughs) Verse 6 is the magic grow capsule of theological truth. And verses 7 through 13 is the dinosaur. Here's what I mean. What I'm saying is, seven through thirteen are an expansion of verse six, because again, verse six is prophecy, is it not? Is that not predicting and 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 uh, uh, portraying what is to come? And yet, and yet, although some of verse six is being fulfilled right now through the church and the proclamation of the gospel, there is so much more that needs to be fulfilled. Salvation has not yet reached the end of the earth. The people of Israel have not yet been restored. Neither we nor they are enjoying a kingdom. And so what that means is that verses 7 through 13 expand verse 6 and portray exactly how the end will come, how the servant will triumph. And I just got to level with you. If you're in Babylon, this is exactly what you need. You need step by step, stage by stage, uh, a display of how it's all going down in the end. And so let's look at three stages of the servant's triumph. Three stages of the servant's triumph, how Christ is going to win it all in the end. Stage one, the vindication of the servant. Look at verse seven. Thus says Yahweh, the redeemer of Israel, his holy one. And then notice, notice Yahweh speaks about the servant. Notice what he calls him. He says to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the, literally, the slave of rulers. And that's true, isn't it? That was true in the days of Christ. It's true today. Jesus Christ is the despised one. He's largely hated and abhorred by the world today. And I know, I know that Time Magazine put him on the cover a few years ago as the man of the year. But that was the social activist Jesus, not the real Jesus. That was the effeminate, I'm okay, you're okay Jesus, not the Lord, God, King, Savior, treasure Jesus. And then the verse literally calls him, notice, the slave of rulers, meaning treated like a slave by the rulers, which is strangely prophetic, isn't it? Strangely prophetic, seeing as though the rulers of his day paid Judas 30 pieces of silver, which was a price of a slave. And yet it won't always be this way, will it? He will not always be the abhorred one. He will not always be the hated one. Why? Because kings and tyrants and rulers of the world beware. The day will come, verse 7, when kings will see and they will arise. Rulers also will bow down to him. Because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who chose you, beloved. You know the tide will turn at the end of the day, won't it? Isaiah 52, 15 says that kings will shut their mouths because of him. Psalm 110 says that he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath and he will be vindicated as the king, as the true king, which means, church, if you could just hang on a little longer. All the crime and the corruption will be over because the king will make it right. Second stage of the servant's triumph, the redemption of the servant. The redemption of the servant. And by that, I don't merely mean redemption of people. I mean the redemption of creation itself. This has tons of moving parts. Look at verse 8. Look at what Yahweh promises the servant. Thus says Yahweh, in a favorable time, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you in You notice your Bible puts those in past tense terms, doesn't it? I have answered you. I will answered you as if this already happened, but it hadn't. This is all still future. And yet you have to understand that's what prophets do. They take something in the future and they speak about it in past tense terms as if it already happened. It is as good as done. And yet the question is, what is as good as done? What is going to happen? Look at the text. Yahweh says, I will keep you, servant, and I will give you, notice carefully, as a covenant of the people to restore, not it should say earth, not just land, to restore the earth and to make them inherit the desolate inheritance. And I know that seems cryptic and weird, but look what he says. He says, I will give you as a covenant of the people. What does that mean? And notice very carefully, the servant doesn't make a covenant. What does it say? He is the covenant. What does that even mean? It's a little complicated. It's pretty theological, but I think it means all the covenants God has ever made with his people will be fulfilled by the servant when he comes. And that day is called the day of salvation. You can see it there in the text. The point is everything God has ever promised in the covenants, and he has promised a great many things will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he arrives. And yet the question is, what has Yahweh promised? What will be fulfilled when Christ arrives? And that's exactly what verses 8 through 12 fills in. Verse 8 seems a little mysterious, seems a little uh, baffling, but what it actually describes is the repairing of the entire planet, which will be in shambles after the tribulation. And get this, I think the end of verse 8 looks strange. I think the end of verse 8 actually describes the servant not only restoring the earth to a a paradise-like condition, I think that actually describes the reallocation of countries to the nations. Did you see that there? It's it's strange language, but I think that's what he's after. Literally, Christ will rebuild civilizations of the world from the ground up. Verses 9 through 12 actually describe the return and restoration of Israel back to the land. That's literal. That's not fictitious. That's real. You understand there was a first exodus in Exodus 14, but the prophets are clear. There will be a second greater later exodus at the end of the age when Jews from all over the world will return home. That is exactly what's described in verses 9 and 10. And look at verses 9 and 10. And here's the thing. Verses 9 and 10 are going to sound totally cryptic and weird to you unless unless you can picture in your mind Jewish refugees traveling back home on a planet in which the curse has been lifted can you picture that can you visualize that with your theological imagination it's exactly what's going to happen The Messiah, Christ, will bring the planet back to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. And as the Jews travel home, verse 9, notice it says, On the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all of their bare heights. They will not hunger. They will not thirst. The heat and the sun will not beat down upon them. For the one who has compassion upon them will guide them. And to pools of water he will lead them. That sounds kind of crazy, but I take it literally, and so should you. I'm serious. Because what you just saw in those prophetic (coughs) Poetic texts were Jewish people coming home to Israel on a planet resembling something like the Garden of Eden. You notice lavish food and water along the way, they do not hunger, they do not thirst. I'm not even kidding, climate-controlled, air-conditioned paradise over the entire earth. Why I say that is because this text is quoted in Revelation 7 to describe the eschatological environment. This is the lifting of the curse. This is not crazy. This is not fable. This is not a myth. This is real. This is true. This is prophecy because paradise will be lost on the earth. Paradise will be regained on the earth. You believe that, right? And yet, yet, here's the thing, the journey across the planet's still going to be pretty tough. There are mountains to climb. There are ravines to cross. It's not a problem. Look at verse 7. Yahweh says, and I will appoint all of my mountains into a what? Into a road. And my freeways will be raised up, which sounds totally incoherent. If you weren't here for chapter 11 or chapter 35 or chapter 40, which I believe describes the literal construction of a freeway in the future, I'm not even kidding. That's what this is. You can see it in verse 11. Mountains will be leveled. Valleys will be raised. God will literally alter the landscape of the planet to build a superhighway for the Jews to return back home with easy access to Zion to worship their king in the splendor of his glory. Is that crazy? Is that particularly hard to believe? It's not. Verse 12, notice verse 12 describes the regions from where the people will come. It says, Behold, these ones will come from afar. Behold, these ones will come from the north and from the east, and these ones from the land of Sinim, or maybe your Bible says Syene. And my question is, beloved, what is verse 12? What is verse 12 but a global exodus from the ends of the earth? Do you see it? Th- that's exactly what it is. And the end of the verse when it says that they will come from the land of Sinim, that is the only time that country is mentioned in the Bible. And some Hebrew scholars think that's the ancient word for China. Probably southern Egypt, but it's still cool. My point is very simply this. This has never happened. This has never happened. The Jews today are still in widespread sin and unbelief. They have rejected and hate their own Messiah. They are scattered all over the planet and not in the land. More Jews live outside Israel than live inside Israel. And my point is very simply this. Listen carefully. The nation of Israel today is in the very predicament this prophecy resolves. It's here in the sacred text. This is the plan. Which brings us to the third stage. We're almost done. Hang with me. The third stage of his triumph. Number three, the celebration because of the servant. The celebration because of the servant. Look at verse 13. And notice very carefully who Yahweh calls to rejoice. It ain't people. It says, rejoice, O heavens. And shout for joy, O earth. Let the mountains break forth with a shout of joy. Why? For Yahweh will have joy will show comfort to his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted. You know, verses like this, because they kind of sound familiar, the theology is totally camouflaged, isn't it? We read stuff like this, we don't even notice the theology that's really there. Because again, notice, who is called to rejoice? What is called to rejoice? It's creation. It's the heavens and the earth. It's the cosmos. It's all of creation. But The the question is, why does Yahweh call creation to rejoice? What is the reason given in the text? What does it say? For Yahweh will comfort his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Do you see the connection? What does the rejoicing of creation, as it were, have to do with the people of Israel? And Yahweh comforting them. What does one thing have to do with the other? Well, here's the thing. Listen carefully. Creation cares about the comfort and restoration of Israel because the restoration of Israel signals the restoration of creation itself. Meaning, when Israel gets redeemed in the future, then is when creation will be redeemed from the curse of sin. And if that sounds crazy to you, then what did Paul mean in Romans 8 when he said this? If you have your notes, it's in there. For the anxious longing of creation is awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility at the fall, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because, get this, the creation itself will be set free from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see what's coming in the future? Souls will be saved Creation will be redeemed, freed from the curse of sin. It will happen simultaneously and all at once. That's what this is. And they and we will live happily ever after. And that's the poem. The messianic poem of hope. And, and you hear this text and, and maybe you think, Jared exaggerated. He exaggerated, a well-intentioned exaggeration about the potential of this text to change my life because I claimed, did I not? I claimed that the secret of your holiness and the power of your sanctification is found in this text, right? I claimed that the power to conquer your deepest fears and cultivate your faith is found in this very text, did I not? I claim that marriages can be saved by this text. That the cloud of depression can be lifted by this text. And I was not exaggerating. Because although this text does not say one word about any of those issues directly, what it does have is the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that is how our lives are changed. So I leave you with three, three reasons why Christ is worthy of hope and joy and worship and allegiance. Number one, number one, and then we're done. Number one, as the servant, listen carefully, as the servant, Christ is wholly sufficient for the dilemmas of life and the soul. Christ is wholly sufficient for the dilemmas of life and the soul. Because you remember, Christ doesn't just make demands upon his disciples, right? He doesn't just tell us what to do, although he does tell us what to do, and he has every right to do so. But we remember that as the servant, he supplies the power we need to do what he commands. Amen? You understand he is insanely interested in changing your life, beloved. And should you keep his word at the center of your life, you will not fail to have exactly what you need. Number two. As a man who is also fully God, Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's our merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 4.15 put it beautifully. For we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. So? So what? What do I do with that? What is the right response to that very next verse? Let us draw near to the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I don't know how you feel, but every moment is the time of need. You understand, as a man, he knows the struggles of being human because he himself became one and lived it all. But as fully God, he will never fail to deliver exactly what you need, number three. Number three, and then we're done. As the light, Christ isn't just the source of salvation. He is salvation itself. He is salvation itself. And what is salvation? Salvation is not merely the forgiveness of your sins. It is not merely escape from the wrath of God. It is not merely, or it is not at all, just a quiet state of contemplation in some smoky, heavenly realm with togas and a harp. No. Salvation. Salvation, or at least part of what salvation is, is a sweet union with Jesus Christ by faith where our souls are inseparably intertwined with his that he purchased is yours all that he is in the glory of his perfections is what you were created to need and enjoy forever which means and this is the entire point of the sermon which means faith in christ is nothing less than a delightful and affectionate sense of his divine perfection which makes the soul resign itself and sacrifice itself unto him, desiring above all things to trust him. The servant is worthy, beloved. He's worthy of your hope. He's worthy of your joy. He's worthy of your worship and every single Christ what can we say that would do justice to who you are as the great servant yes a king yes a redeemer yes Lord yes creator but a servant who serves us and who does what's best for us and and astonishingly enough astonishingly enough loves to do so oh Lord we are so grateful We're so grateful that you have intervened in our lives and you have rescued us from eternal woe and despair. I pray that you would give hope to the hopeless this morning. I pray that you would give joy to the joyless this morning. I pray that you would cause those who mourn to worship, which doesn't necessarily mean we know, mean that we feel better, but that in and through the struggle, in and through the pain, in and through the agony, we hold fast and cling to you. And Lord, if there are any rebels in this room, those not reconciled to the Father through you, any of those who play a game, I pray that they would yield right now today before it's too late. That their eyes would be open to the humanly incurable corruption of their own souls and their eyes would be open to your surpassing worth and beauty as a great suffering servant, Savior, King, and Messiah, and they would yield their lives to you and live a life that puts your glory on display. It's that glory that we long for above all things in your name.